Hello, and welcome to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite books and poems and how these works have shaped how they think about love and happiness. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I'm co-PI of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life Project, which, along with this podcast, is generously supported by the John Templeton Foundation. Today, we've got a conversation with the Thomas theologian, Father Thomas Joseph White, about love, grace, redemption, and comic mercy in the short stories of Flannery O'Connor. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I'm very happy to have Father Thomas Joseph White join us this morning. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Jennifer. It's great to be here. Great. It's great to have you. Uh, So Father Thomas Joseph entered the Order of Preachers in 2003. His research and teaching have focused particularly on topics related to Thomistic metaphysics and Christology, as well as Roman Catholic Reformed ecumenical dialogue. And you've written a whole bunch of books, which I'm not going to list, but I will mention that you were a scholar on our Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project. You were one of our theologians. So, Father, you work at the Dominican House of Studies, and I suspect that many of our listeners have no idea what that is, or perhaps even what the Dominican order is and how it relates to where you work. So, could you tell us a little something more about that? St. Dominic was very interested in the blossoming university life of Europe as universities kind of came into being in their crystallized form and sent friars to study and teach in these universities, including the famous St. Albert the Great and St. Thomas Aquinas, who were two early Dominicans. And so the Dominicans rose to prominence as an intellectual order from the beginning and were very involved in the Aristotelian revival in medieval Catholicism and the theories of virtue, the theories of human personhood that were a Christian interpretation or Christian reception of Aristotle. Uh, And so Dominicans to this day, they don't slavishly follow Aquinas, but they all get some exposure to Aquinas typically. And uh, we have houses of study where we train people for the priesthood, but also for higher studies often afterwards doing doctorates in philosophy and theology. I get that you guys are studying theology at the Dominican House of Studies, but I just wondered if you could say more about what theology is. I mean, what makes it special in terms of an academic discipline, say, what makes it distinct from religious studies or philosophy uh, or anything else? One thing that has to be considered is that there's a, a Protestant heritage and an American Protestant heritage for thinking about theology that is, in many respects in the United States, emotivist. So we think of theology as uh, basically an attempt for people to explain their religious feelings or sentiments Mm. derived from devotional religious practices that may be of unreliable rational worth. (laughs) And it it begets an intellectual reaction to like, well, theology is basically an unstructured attempt for people to to describe what are potentially unreliable or even irrational emotional states derived, you know, that are follow from religious practices. This is not classical Catholicism. Yeah, so it's not about your super special feelings. I get that. Uh, But I guess I'm still left wondering what's distinctive about it, Quay theology. I mean, presumably it's the study of God, but that doesn't really help because philosophers think about God too. So what makes a theologian's approach to thinking about God distinctive. There's a major attempt also in the 13th century because of Aristotle and the posterior analytics to think about what is theology as a scientia, as a science, as a disciplined body of knowledge. And of course, they're aware that the first principles of this scientia or this way of thinking about reality do not derive from natural knowledge and from philosophy, but from revelation. And their whole point is it's compatible with philosophy. It can make use of and assimilate truths of philosophy. In fact, it needs to, as well as truths of observational science. They have a category, observational science. So they think theology needs to make use of philosophy and observational science, but it's based on something higher, which is God revealing his own internal identity to us. You know, I mean, to use an analogy, it's very simple. Think about knowing someone, like knowing someone exists that's just across the room, but you've never met them, and then really coming to have them divulge like information about themselves and actually, as it were, manifest their inner personality to you. So analogously, and it's very different, obviously, mutatis mutandis, there's the idea that we can come to grasp that there exists a transcendent source of reality that is we call God, the religious traditions call God, that's a giver of being to all things, but we don't really know who or what God is. It's another thing if God reveals himself to us 
and that revelation would it would stand would not contradict the structure of reality as known philosophically but would be compatible with it and then we could study the inward shape of that revelation that's what theology does and the catholic classical view is that grace or the gift of knowledge of god that comes through faith and grace does not uh, destroy nature is not contrary to nature but is above nature and works with and can assimilate the gifts of nature analogously faith can assimilate the work of philosophical reasoning and theology can be congruent with and in harmony with philosophy as you know i'm interested in aquinas on love especially caritas or charity now one of the problems we run up against when we talk about charity is that people think a paradigmatic instance is writing a check to an NGO it's a kind of disinterested benevolence or something like that you know effective altruism what a lot of people call charity could actually be just justice and and it actually by giving something to people who have need you're actually ceasing to hoard uh, an undue amount of of personal wealth so it could be justice it could be benevolence but it would be natural virtue. We have this Christian concept of charity, but it but it sort of doesn't mean what it used to mean. I just wondered if you could say something about what Aquinas means by caritas. Well, let me first just talk about what he means more generally when he talks about love, which can have, you know, there's many different words in Latin. But so Aquinas has an analogical conception of love. That's really important to start with. That's to say there are different things that we can call love and that they're actually kind of distinctive, but the word fits each of them in slightly different modes because there's something in common despite their differences. So, you know, Aquinas does have a very strong development of thinking about sensate love, the love of the senses. And that could be anything from a more base appetite, instinctive love, like the love of chocolate or sexual attraction to something more emotive and what he calls, that pertains to what he calls the passions or the emotions like affective love. So, and that emotional love, that sensate and emotional love, that's kind of already a broad category, can have a huge range. So, you could feel a sensate affect of love for chocolate, but you can feel a sensate affect of love for another person, but it's a felt love. It's an, in the, in rooted in our emotive animality. All right. So, there's, there's one way in which he just describes sensate animal love as something very deeply rooted in the human being and very real and very important and very, you know, kind of fundamental to our human behavior. So, psychological, animal, emotive love. Another level is what he would call natural love of friendship. And that's really where Aquinas is trying to understand what is it to naturally have a, a love of friendship for another person that's it, it's rooted in our animal passions and our emotions about the person, but it's more than my emotions for the other person, right? So, if I'm really friends with someone, it's not just like, oh, I feel emotionally passionate or emotionally invested in this person. No, it's got there's, – there's more rationality and sort of responsibility of justice for the other person. And so, there's natural love. And then above that, the third register is charity. And that for Aquinas – is a gift. Again, the word in Christian parlance is grace, a gift of God to allow the human being by what Aquinas calls an infused virtue, that's to say a virtue given or infused into the soul, to love in a way that is akin to the way God loves. That's to say, to participate in something, to participate imperfectly but truly in something like divine love. And that's a much more, it's, you might call it a mystical love, but it doesn't necessarily entail mystical experience. It can happen very quietly, but it's basically a kind of gift to love God and love one's neighbor by participating in a grace of God. Now, he thinks these th three things are really analogous. So, like, charity is like sensual love and very unlike it. Friendship is like charity and very unlike it. And the higher loves don't destroy the lower loves. You say that grace is a gift, but I don't know, with gifting, is it is it sort of the kind of gift that, yeah, sure, it's gratuitous, but it's you can expect it? It's kind of like, you know, like a birthday gift. I mean, sure, you know, I don't have to give my kids a birthday present, but they expect it. And, and it would be strange if I didn't give it. Does it have that sort of logic of gifting? First of all, I'm a, one thing I do, I'm a Catholic priest, so one thing I do as a Catholic priest is talk to people all the time who are like atheists or Jews or Muslims or, you know, Protestants or fallen away Catholics 
or agnostics who are thinking about becoming Catholic, returning to being Catholic, practicing the Catholic faith. And so I talk to them as they go through stages of reflection on whether grace is something real. You hear lots of stories. And I mean, I listen to them very dispassionately. I mean, really, because partly I just, it's my job. It's kind of like, almost like a doctor listening to people talk about, you know, whatever they're struggling with in their illnesses. But although, I mean, I wouldn't make an analogy of religiosity illness, but you know, there's a clinical aspect that gets, you become very dispassionate and and really Mm because you want the good of the person. Uh, You see everything, right? So you see some people for whom it almost seems like grace comes upon them, like the awareness of God and Christ comes upon them, like dawns on them in a very organic, normal way. But for most reflective intellectual people who are adult and secular, like it's a surprise to figure out that this actually could be real. There's a certain deep change that comes over them intellectually to it's not they don't come alienated in their form from their former intellectual life, but they they change rather you know strongly in that they sense they they sense the possible reality of God and of Christ in a way they just didn't ever in their previous adult life. Now the second thing I want to say is some people presume because you're a priest you've always been religious or whatnot, but in my case I was a totally secular person who was at a very secular Ivy League school in undergraduate, but basically through interests that had nothing to do with Christianity, eventually got interested in Christianity and read my way into becoming Catholic. And so what I'm the reason I'm saying that autobiographical thing is that I, from my own experience, definitely am of the kind of person who experienced the idea of receiving grace as something totally unexpected and, and novel. I would imagine that a lot of people would have the following reaction to this sort of story. You know, so you're so you're a Brown and, and you receive this grace, hooray for you, but what about all the other people at Brown? Yes, God does offer grace to all people. That's a teaching of the Catholic Church. But it can be one can navigate oneself around it rather easily. And so there does have to be often some real intentional exploration or intentional asking, like a prayers of the agnostic, where the person starts to ask God, if, if it's real, please help me sort of figure it out. Mm-hmm. That often does involve a search. It's not always just immediately given in ways that are overwhelming or evident. It can unfold. And I think in most people's cases, it unfolds somewhat slowly over time, but slowly could mean six months. And I think, I think people often have to kind of uh, investigate religion. So the Catholic Church has, argu- has basically kind of come to clarify over time based on its understanding of the New Testament that God does offer grace to all people. Now, sometimes this grace may be uh, less manifest, but typically it is kind of an invitation of people to investigate the claims of Christianity or to investigate the mystery of Christ or to investigate the mystery of the Christian religion. And this invitation is often discreet or modest in its in psychologically felt sense, but it can be embraced or snuffed out. It can come about multiple times in life. It can be recurrent because God could give the grace recurrently, and people can begin to engage with it. But they can also choose to not engage with it, and that there's a deep respect. There's this whole idea of the just respect of the freedom of the self in the Catholic tradition that God can incite interest in or at least raise questions that could lead to real engagement with religion and grace, but that he also shows a strange but real profound respect for the human freedom and dignity of the creature who may wish to buffer themselves from any real encounter with God. So what makes Aquinas' views about grace distinctive or worth thinking about? Well, I just think so deeply about it and how it is coherent with all the Aristotelian network of intellectual, moral, and artistic virtues. Thinking about how faith and charity can come and inform and motivate the human exercise of all those virtues, respecting all the natural domain in us, but also making it possible to turn all that toward life with God, friendship with God. You can ask, well, what is grace? Where is it? And Aquinas is going to say, well, in some respects, it's in the intellect, in other respects, it's in the will. And then it's more deeply rooted in the in the soul, not as the soul, but as property of the soul or a quality of the soul that flowers and emerges through these two dual immaterial operations of intellect and will and begins to qualify our rational activity and our voluntary activity as Christian persons so that we live intentionally motivated by 
faith, hope, and charity. Faith is in the elect as judgment, and charity, uh, hope and charity are in the will as qualifying the activity of the will. And then like he looks at how this flowers in various kinds of Christian activities. Flannery O'Connor famously described herself as a as a hillbilly Thomist. If you learn anything about Flannery O'Connor, you realize there's something in her fiction about these moments of clarity or sort of epiphany or or grace. So I just wondered if we could transition to talking about her fiction and the ways that Aquinas's views on grace are are operating in it. Yeah, okay. So the first thing to say is Flannery O'Connor is following Aquinas on the idea that grace works in a hylomorphic creature, that's to say a creature of body and soul, in and through sense experiences. But as she says in her letters, that one of her aspirations is to show how grace works without the sacraments. Because so for Aquinas, as a, as a Catholic, he thinks the ordinary way that the human animal encounters God and receives grace is through the sacraments. So, things like the Eucharist, things like confession, things like baptism, things like confirmation and the anointing of the sick. You know, in Catholic theology, they don't just we don't just believe that these things are signs or symbols, but they are actually in some way of origin, apostolic origin from the early Christian, you know, from Christ and the apostles, and that they actually are sources of grace. Aquinas calls them instruments of grace. And so grace works through them, and that's fitting, Aquinas argues, because as an as a rational animal, we receive spiritual goods in and through the media, the mediums of physical experiences and sensible experiences. There's a certain sort of fittingness to God's instituting sacraments as ways we find and encounter grace. But Flannery O'Connor is writing about her own world of rural Georgia in the 1950s and using it as a platform for thinking more universally about the offer of grace, which she believes is offered to all people, but she's trying to show it in a kind of slightly comic, slightly horrific way as manifesting itself in a world where there are no sacraments or where, well, there's baptism, but there isn't really anything else. And I mean, in that sense, she's a deeply self-consciously Catholic author writing in a very Protestant context and somewhat critically and wryly. But there's a kind of optimism. So she's showing how people who are often very, in her mind, humorously ignorant of their own defects of soul are having those defects of soul manifest to them, but also the sort of joyful, redemptive power of the grace of God manifested to them in, you might say, extraordinary ways through external events through which God is working. And in her Catholic mind, she's sort of trying to wake us up to the idea that grace can be at work in the world, you know, and thus a lot of the drama of the stories. Right. At work in the world, specifically outside of the sacraments. Yeah, precisely. Right. And that's why the symbols are so important in her stories, as kind of symbols like sacraments. So you mentioned that there's a lot of, I believe she calls it the grotesque, but there's a lot of sort of comic violence in her stories. A lot of people reading her, I think, would be surprised to hear it characterized as redemptive. It's the key. It's why the comedy isn't sadistic. Is because she actually is, she thinks these are happy stories in a sense that uh, the people are, uh, you're actually watching the triumph of grace in people's souls. And you have to remember, she's a Catholic. She believes in what we would call in theology speak eschatology or the last things, that there's life after death. So she's looking at how the soul can be redeemed or re- reunited with God by grace, sort of despite our follies. And so the humor is twofold. The humor is like, oh, it exposes how, you know, sort of limited and pathetic we are. And she's got a strong Augustinian notion of original sin. And there's a sort of comic um, unveiling of the human person to ourselves, as it were, going on. But there's another side that's a comedy is like the playfulness of God or maybe the humor of God in overcoming human folly by the power of grace. But it is happening often through violence as the shock element. Why shock and violence I think you it's know, because like, she thinks we're coarsened. I think she thinks her characters are coarsened. I think she thinks her she herself is coarsened, and she thinks we're coarsened. And so the the violence is a kind of a a prompt to wake you up to something that's you're not master of the situation. A lot of times, the violence is the context in which an ir- irony occurs. There's a difference between what the character thinks they are and what the character really is, and it takes violence for us to recognize in, in these stories who we really are. As you've mentioned, most of her characters are kind of comically self-deceived. 
they have a very distorted self-perception. It doesn't match reality. Why do you think this is a theme in her work? She clearly is the kind of person that thinks sincerity is overvalued. You know, she's often writing for the secular, seemingly enlightened reader who, right. who looks down on these, you know, really kind of hick-like characters in Southeast Georgia and thinks that they know better what's wrong with them. But the irony is we're maybe not that different. And maybe we are also very insular and very coarsened, but just in ways we don't recognize. And this is not really the kind of postmodern move to say, well, we're all limited in our own way, in our own historical seats and lab. And it's, it's much more like a, there's a deep systemic problem of self-delusion going on in us. That's one of the ways her works lure you in to be judging these people. But actually, we're also being implicated. Uh, and there's the cathartic moment in which we realize that there's some other mystery at work. And it's not going to, the story does not finish the way we expected. That's the sort of enigma element, I think, where she's writing. And I don't think she's writing to judge people she thinks are very different than herself. I think she feels a certain solidarity with the people who she's seeking to challenge. I think the stories are written in many ways for secular people. This kind of self-deception or self-delusion, I mean, is that supposed to be one of the effects of original sin or yeah, or is it supposed to be right. something a little more? Yeah, so yeah. I mean, there's different views on original sin in the Catholic Church and there's a variety of positions that one can hold that are all permitted and there's some positions that are excluded, like the Lutheran theory of radical depravity is excluded by the Council of Trent. So one may not believe in the Catholic Church that the human being is radically corrupt in such a way that they're, cap- they're incapable of any natural good. That's considered too severe and inaccurate and non-biblical, and that's a point of contestation with some some Protestants who hold that view. But you also can't hold, uh, on the other side, that there's really nothing wrong with us, and all we did was lose grace, but our nature is completely undamaged. And she holds uh, something on the stronger side. I wouldn't say extreme, but it's it's certainly a way of reading Aquinas, incidentally, where, I mean, there are deep affectations of ignorance in us. I mean, Aquinas talks about four wounds, ignorance in the mind, coarsened malice or selfishness in the will, uh, concupiscence in the concupiscible faculties, disordered, exaggerated love of pleasures, and uh, weakness in the irascible, basically a kind of human laziness and incapacity to motivate ourselves. And so these four wounds affect us. And she shows characters often particularly wounded in the mind by ignorance. And and the enlightenment happens often through ironic situations. If you take the, the famous story Revelation, that's the best story to read first if you've never read Flannery O'Connor because it, it, it's the most paradigmatically clear where you really see what's going on in general in her fiction. Okay, so you have, you know, the f- character who is not not a very uh, knowledgeable Miss Turpin, right? She's right, Mrs. Mrs. Turpin. Turpin. Yeah, Mrs. <laughs> Turpin, who's who's a, a rather simple woman, but, you know, white, lower middle class woman in uh, rural Georgia in the 19, I guess, 60s or 50s, and who is uh, extremely racist and also, you know, very class conscious. We're given to see her inmost thoughts in a doctor's office, and she's not a portrait of moral admiration. And there's a key moment in the book where, well, there's a young woman sitting across from her in the doctor's office who is, if she can read her mind, which is probably what Flannery O'Connor envisages here, who has, you know, the the young woman has gone up to Wellesley to study. <laughs> and it's as right. if she can read her mind and it's art. She also can list, is listening to things that the woman's saying in the doctor's office. It's clear that young woman from Wellesley who has basically her face is covered with acne. acne. She's furious at the sort of provinciality and racism of the woman and the sort of judgmental narrow-mindedness. And she takes the book she's reading from college. On, she's on break from college. It's called Human Development. And she throws it across the room and it hits the woman uh, in the head, who has then a minor stroke and falls on the floor. Well, she also tries to strangle her. And she tries to strangle her, and she says, you're a warthog from hell. And she right. uh, screams, you're a warthog from hell, and they have to drag her off. And, and so, the you know, she goes home, and then she has a vision of purgatory. And all the people that she was seeing as being behind her, beneath her, below her, from the what she calls the white trash to the African-American population, they're all going ahead of her through purgatory. And it's interesting how it's shown because she has it out by the pig pen where, you know, in a way, Flannery Connor saying, you belong. Uh, she has it out by the pig pen and, and she sees it out in the clouds of the sky. And you could say, well, it, isn't this just a maybe a, a hallucination that stems from the bump she got on the head. And Flannery O'Connor leaves it purposefully kind of vague, but it's clear that in O'Connor's mind, it's, it is actually something 
higher. There's a, in this case, a kind of miraculous vision happening in and through the natural, grace not destroying nature, etc. And the woman comes to kind of see through violence that she is not who she thought she was. And everyone is entering heaven before her. The comedy is that she's all now invited to get into the procession, as it were, in her spiritual life and be humbled and begin to accept, to, to love and to be changed. And so it's God's, as it were, comic mercy and redemption. And the, the real human development doesn't occur through reading the big book. The real human development occurs when God, as it were, uh, smacks her across the head and tells her through the voice of the alienated youngster, you're a right. warthog from hell. And she says in her whimperingly in her vision, why did you call me a warthog from hell? Well, the reason is actually because hell is a place where people don't love. And you don't love when you're actually using all the occasions of the people around you to try to self-referentially aggrandize yourself. There's a certain conversion there that's humorous and um, at the same time kind of horrific. And the ugliness of human beings is, is very manifest, but also God's mercy toward them, even in their ugliness and his love for them. Now, the way I told it sounds very pious and very clerical. The way it's told by Flannery O'Connor is, is sort of fantastic and, and humorous and interesting. Is she necessarily redeemed? I mean, are we to think that at the end of this story? I mean, there's the possibility, right? Well, I think, I think, I think that it's you get to where you're just at the very beginning of something new. You don't see the next chapter in her life. The reason I do think we are supposed to is because Flannery O'Connor said in one of her letters, I think, that she only overwrote one story about damnation and all the rest are about redemption. And the thing is, when you read them, you're like, really? I, I, I couldn't really tell that. But uh, right. I, think she, I think that that's a clue. I mean, so I, I do think it's helpful to read the letters, uh, partly because the stories are opaque in some ways. And I think they're meant to be opaque so that we don't feel like we master them too quickly. She could have written a lot more clearly if she'd wanted. I think it's very part, very much part of her artifice to make you inquisitive at the end. But I do think in this case, it's pretty clear that the vision of purgatory suggests that this woman is on a new path that's better. But yeah, it's, it's, she clearly doesn't understand fully what's happened to her. So there's right. a certain suspense. There's still a certain suspense at the very end. Well, she does talk about, I think it's one of her essays, maybe the grotesque in Southern fiction, where she talks about redemption coming at a very high price. This isn't sort of like cheap grace. No. But what is the price, do you think? I mean, what is, what is the cost of well, redemption? Uh, there's another story, which is fantastic, called The Enduring Chill, which is about a young man who goes up to a study in the North. It's basically like her own life. She went off to a secular writer's college in Iowa. And he decides that all the you know people back where he comes from are a bunch of hicks and stupid and uh, you know ridiculously religious. But anyway, he contracts, unbeknownst to himself, by some follies of his own, a very bad virus. And in the end, he well, he asks to upset his Methodist mother if he can talk to a Jesuit priest – uh, on his what he thinks is his deathbed, and in fact, he gets a rather simple priest from Savannah with one eye who represents the Cyclops, actually, because uh, this guy loves Joyce, so he's thinking about the. There's a whole kind of ironic response to Joyce and to the the Cyclops scene in Joyce's Ulysses in this story, which is fantastic. But anyway, the priest comes in with one eye and starts asking him questions from the Penny Catechism, and is this, as it were, nailing him to the bed. And the guy can, realizes at the end from an old doctor who's done the the the, the work of on the lab that he has an incurable illness for life that will not kill him, but that will keep him forever paraplegic in bed well not paraplegic but you know in bed and and basically dependent upon his mother who he thinks is a simple person and that's kind of what happened to o'connor of course with her lupus she was very dependent on her mother and was basically consigned to bed she died young her father died young of lupus that kind of humbling that takes place is going to be the way he's redeemed and i think she herself through her own deep physical illness she said it was one of the great graces of her life to to die slowly of a, a very demanding physical illness which is an amazing thing to say. But right. um, I think that that kind of shows you where she thinks sometimes the cost of redemption lies is that there are, there are real crosses in life. There are real sufferings. There are longstanding places of, of endurance where the human being learns to lean on the support of God, depend on God's grace, and become a, a confessor, a confessor of faith, and also a confessor of one's sins in perpetual dependence on God and in leaning into the help that only God can give. 
And I think she thinks that that's actually what happens in real in the real world. You have to kind of come to terms with your sins. You have to come to terms with your need for change. Uh, you have to start fighting. You have to get into the battle. And there's where the sacraments are going to help you. So if Revelation sort of ends on this optimistic note of possibility for redemption, some of her other stories, like A Good Man is Hard to Find or Greenleaf, the violence is more extreme and more final. I yeah, mean, but I think A Good Man is Hard to Find that- is, is, is one of the most incredibly optimistic stories ever written in American literature. Because okay, so, the, because yeah, okay, the misfit, the, because the misfit, if you listen to his motives, I mean, he is a nihilist. At least he's a sort of a, a country hillbilly nihilist he is the the hillbilly nihilist because she said she said famously people think i'm a hillbilly nihilist but i'm really a hillbilly thomas but he is the hillbilly nihilist and he says you know in the story something to the effect of like if i could have known he would have existed i would be different but i never have met him and and there's nothing to do but kill and you know murder people alive there's a certain kind of crass nietzscheanism of i mean nietzsche might not have approved of the misfit but i mean there's a kind of crass idea of the will to power in the misfit and he doesn't see a way forward toward any kind of redemption or transcendence. But when he goes to kill the grandmother, she has just be- – he kills her, actually. He's telling her all this. And it's when she has a moment of epiphany of compassion towards him that he kills her. And she's redeemed by it. And the blood from – I mean, in other words, his violence exerted toward her causes her to change. She's another one of these people who's a bit of a moral ninny. And she she undergoes this change, I think we're supposed to believe, in the last moment of her life, somewhat delirious – and it's 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 ambiguous, but I think she undergoes this, like her last moment of transformation. That's in the middle of her delirium and her terror, and the blood from the shotgun blast shatters onto his eyes, onto his glasses, and right. he takes it to clean it off. And and that's when he says she would have been a good woman if there was just someone there to shoot her every day of her life. Right. But God has used the worst thing that a human, you know, sort of the worst outcomes of human despair to as occasions of grace for this woman. And so even God can make use even of great evil for good outcomes. I mean, there's a certain weird way in which she's suggesting that old Augustinian adage that God can bring good out of evil that he merely permits and doesn't will for its own sake. That's to say the evil. And so, I I mean, I think there's a weird way in which the misfit has even become, despite himself and over and against his own wishes, an instrument of God. And I think when he gets the blood on his glasses, he started to see it. There's a moment there, there's even a moment of question about whether he is the ultimate one, who because he thinks he's misfit. He says he's a misfit in this universe, but it may be that he now sees that he's not a misfit, that there is a place for him, that even the things he's done that are wrong, God can use, has used despite him in some larger plan, and maybe, he, maybe there is a way he fits in. So I like that. I, I have some follow-up questions, but just to give people some of the background, so the you know, it's, it's a story of a family on a, on a road trip. It's the grandmother and her son and her son's family, and they end up getting lost. And they end up getting lost because of the grandmother. She, she sort of forgets where she's going and it tells them to take a wrong turn. She directs them down the wrong path. Then they get and, in a car accident because her cat leaps out of the, which she wasn't supposed to bring on the trip, leaps out of the, right. of the basket onto the shoulder of her son driving the car. And he moves suddenly and he swerves off the road and they, they turn over. Right. So there, there's sort of like all these comic elements and we, we sort of know right away like something terrible is going to happen. And so of course I, they, well, and, of, and of course they run into this criminal who's escaped the misfit and his men. And they've been talking the whole trip. She's been talking the whole trip about him to different places, people in the stop and just talking about how horrible it would be to meet him. So that's right. Of course they do and, meet him. <laughs> yeah. So, and they do meet him. And of course it's the grandmother that seals their fate because she sort of, you know, at first when you're reading it, you're thinking, okay, well maybe they'll get through it. But then she identifies him. She yeah, says, I, knew, I know who you are. You're the misfit. So by doing this, she, of course, seals their fate. I mean, he murders all of them, including yeah. the small children. He, kill, he, he kills her son, her daughter-in-law, and her two grandchildren first, and then eventually and la- finally kills her. And she's hearing all of this. I mean, she's so they hearing... take him off in the woods, yeah. And the woods is always interesting in Flannery O'Connor. She, she read a lot of Jung, and she was very interested in a Dominican who was friends with Jung named Victor White, who had this whole Thomistic Jungian theory of symbols. Okay. So she's got 
Oh, the, really? The, the wood, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why the sun is always the image of God. The S U N. The sun is always uh-huh. the image of God, and and it's behind the tree line. And the tree line, right. which if you live in Southeast Georgia, is you know there's always a, a tree line of 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 pine trees somewhere and not far in the distance. And that's that's the the borderline between this world and the world to come. And so the misfit has his men take them out into the trees, into the woods, and that they're going off into the next world. And the sun is setting behind the tree line. So there's this moment where she recognizes the misfit. But then her moment of redemption, I, I suppose you would call it, is when she sort of recognizes the misfit as a as a child of God. She and sees his vulnerability, and that's when he kills her, because she's seen his vulnerability. That's my reading on it. I don't know if that's right, but I think because she says, you're also a child of God. And it's like there's a moment in which she doesn't maybe come to a clear sense of her own sinfulness, but she does come to a sense of, well, she comes to a clear sense that his sinfulness is not an obstacle to God loving him or something like that. Well, and then that's a, when he kills her. Yeah, it's a very intimate moment between them, actually. So, you know, it's a listen, lady, he said in a high voice. If I had have been there, this would be a, a Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. If I had have been there, I would have known. And I wouldn't be like I am now. His voice seemed about to crack, and the grandmother's head cleared for an instant. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own, as if he were going to cry. And she murmured, why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. She reached out and touched him on the shoulder. The misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times. So he has this very violent reaction to this intimate gesture of love towards him. And then he tells uh, his men, you know, to throw her in the ground with the others. And then the the last line, he he sort of reprimands one of his men who says in response to having shot everyone, some fun. He says, shut up, Bobby Lee. It's no real pleasure in life. This goes back to something that he was telling the grandmother. So he sort of tells her about his nihilism, right? He's like, oh, look, you know, if if Jesus was who he said he was and he did what he said he did, then there's nothing for you to do but throw everything away and follow him. But if he didn't, if it's all a lie or a sham or it's just a story, then there's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you have left the best you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. So he seems to like, I mean, are we supposed to think that he backs away from that at the end? There really is no pleasure in life, this meanness, this nihilism. I think she leaves it ambiguous, but I, I think there's been a partial epiphany. Uh, we're left with, I, I think that's why it's actually a happy story. <laughs> because if you look at it from the inside of a Catholic sensibility, it's like, yeah, he's pretty bad, but you know what? He too can be redeemed. And maybe it's going to come for him next. God got the grandmother. Now God's going to get the misfit, but we got to wait to see that in another story. I mean, not that she's going to write that story, but you know, the point is we're just given snapshots and this snapshot tells us there might be hope for this misfit. I think that that's the sort of note it ends on. And it's kind of, it's kind of comic because he's, he's doing all this to kind of run or to, you know, you know, he seems to have a God haunted consciousness, Christ haunted consciousness in a way that's typical maybe of a, of a Southerner at that time who wouldn't in fact enjoy participating in the moral law. And, the fact that there's a certain illumination and, and cloudiness suggests that there may yet be a dawning of a higher awareness in him. Well, let's talk about, let's just talk about one more story to pick up on that theme. And that is Greenleaf, the story of Mrs. May and, and her sons and, and the Greenleaf family, the Greenleafs work for Mrs. May on her farm. This is another story that ends in, in a scene of dramatic violence. violence. She's gored um, by a bull. She is gored by a bull. And the bull is really at the center of the story. The basic plot point is that this scrubable has wandered onto her property and is like wreaking havoc. And there's potential for all these problems. And she wants it gone. The man who works for her, helps her out on the farm, Mr. Greenleaf, doesn't seem to want to do anything about it. Turns out it's his son's bull. And he obviously doesn't want to get into this conflict with his son's eventually Mrs. May completely loses whatever tiny reserves of patience that 
she had, and she forces Mr. Greenleaf to kill his son's bull. And then in the, in the process of, of attempting this, the bull kills Mrs. May. That's like the basic plot. Now, it's clear that the bull is supposed to be symbolic of something. The bull is Christ. If you look at the opening paragraph, she's, I think, in the morning. Yeah, or maybe it's the night. But she basically discovers the bull outside her window. Yeah, it's at night because it's the moon. Yeah, the bull silvered in the moonlight stood under it, his head raised as if he listened, like some patient god come down to woo her for a stir inside the room. And then it talks about him a little bit later. He, He took a step backwards and lowered his head as if to show the wreath across his horns. So he's it's supposed to spout he's spousal. So the embrace at the end <laughs> when he when he gores her to death is is like Christ wedding her. He's you know uniting her to himself. It's incredibly you know strange image, but it's in death she's wed to God. And in a way, you know, she's a person who Flannery's very hard on. She's a person who needs a reformation of soul or a, a change of of heart, and and it comes for her at a very high cost and in a very tough form. Okay. Um, yeah. So, let, so let's back up. Let's talk a little bit about Mrs. May and, and then we'll talk about this scene at the end uh, because, I, because I definitely have some questions about that. But, you know, Mrs. May is, is a lot like Mrs. Chirpin in the sense that she's, you know, obsessed with her class status. She's constantly talking about sort of the trash beneath her. And in particular, there's the Greenleaf family. Who she and- looks down on and is very jealous of. And part of it is that the Greenleafs are sort of unapologetic in, in who they are, where she thinks they should be ashamed. Um, she it has particular scorn for Mrs. Greenleaf, and this has to do with her sort of wild, rustic, <laughs> religious enthusiasm, right? Where I mean, we, we sort of are introduced to these bizarre scenes of Mrs. Greenleaf, like, just like some sort of prayer ritual where she sort of like is like rolling around in the dirt and is praying for these these people that she cares about and and Mrs. May is like extremely offended by this which she doesn't she sort of has this um, high bourgeois view of Christianity right like if you're a respectable person as she obviously is um, then you will of course go to church you'll be a good Christian woman, but like you won't believe any of it. And you certainly won't make like a big show of your religion. Like that would be incredibly untoward. Yeah. And Mrs. Greenleaf is not considered a model of religiosity by Flannery O'Connor, but she's a good hylomorphosist. I mean, she's, see, she's, she's going out and praying to God in a slightly wild way, but in her body. And so, and and that's quasi-sacramental and misguided. It's both misguided and quasi-sacramental. There was a real event in the 19, I think, 50s, late 50s. It was a story in the newspaper that Flannery O'Connor read that a Tennessee preacher for uh, on Good Friday took a little lamb, a living right, lamb, right. Out, into, uh, out into the, uh, you know, outside, the, took a congregation with him and nailed the lamb to a piece of wood and killed it. And, you know, this had like caused a stir because he wanted them to take seriously that Christ had died for them. So he kills this lamb. And Flannery O'Connor wrote in her, in her letters, well, he's getting toward the truth. You know, right. and what she meant by that was like, he doesn't have the mass, but he does have this idea that you could come into some kind of sacramental symbolic engagement with or the real presence of the cross. And since he doesn't have what he needs, he's going out and making stuff up that's kind of goofy or maybe, you know, strange or violent. But that's what Miss Greenleaf's doing. And and the other woman looks down on her, but, you know, in another way is less human. So the one thing that Mrs. May really, I I hesitate to use the word worship, but she certainly puts a high priority on this kind of Protestant work ethic, right? Like I, you know, I work and slave and I struggle and sweat and, you know, I, and so I'm owed all of these things. Um, And people should be grateful for me, for, for what I've given to them. I mean, she certainly thinks that the Greenleaf family ought to be incredibly grateful to her. And she's, she's definitely miffed to the extent to which she senses that they are not. Yeah, there's a completely, there's a completely plausible, ordinary human pride in this woman. I mean, in other words, she's, oh, she's proud. very proud. Yeah, she's proud, absolutely. but she's proud in a way that's not exceptionally, like not, she's not, it's not so fictional that you can't understand that mentality. It's, a, it's, it's, Pretty close to a lot of people's 
internal ordinary reflections. There's this interesting struggle in her because on the one hand, she's very proud, but on the other hand, she kind of gives into this sort of victim, victimhood, right? Like she's the real victim because her sons aren't grateful to her. They don't help her. The hired help isn't grateful. Like, like no one's acknowledging her position, like her, her place of authority. So on the, so like, she's very proud, but, but she's also very miffed that people aren't giving her what she feels she's owed. And, and, and she is especially envious of the Greenleaf family. And in particular, she's envious of their sons. So, yeah, because they went um, off to war and they married women in Europe and came back and have succeeded and seem, you know, seem not to have deserved. They're basically good country people who have succeeded despite the fact that they didn't put as much work into things as, as she has, at least in her mind. Right. And she's very obsessed with you know, keeping them in their place. She's constantly saying things like, well, you know, you look nice, but I know you came from her, right? You came from trash. You came from this, this woman who is, is out there rolling in the, in the woods and isn't, you know, you're not really fit for society. Whereas her sons, you know, even though they are not successful, they're not married, they're, they're not starting a family, and they're certainly not going to carry on the farm when she's gone. But yet they are more fit or they're, they're somehow better. I mean, there's always... She what's has so, this- yeah, so what's, what's so magnificent about the story is you actually kind of feel very much kind of by the time you're you know, well into it, you sort of feel this woman's plight. And then she gets killed. And so you have to go back like the second time and think, wait, why'd she kill her off? You know, but then you, you, I mean, you see the other side too. You know, there's a certain sense in which she's, her point is like a lot of externally understandable circumstances are not necessarily going to, you know, excuse like the deeper absence of something that's this woman's broken inside. I mean, I don't think we're supposed to see her primarily in moral terms as much as, as where I would put in medicinal terms. I mean, she's broken. Uh, there's something deeply lacking in her, and uh, and that and she reflects us. She reflects the human race. It's extreme and comical, and also plausible. Let's talk about this final scene. I mean, so what's what's interesting and it has to be important is that she's she's forcing Mister Greenleaf to basically destroy his own family's property right? <laughs> to to kill this bull. And she's taking a lot of pleasure in it. So it's it's not enough that for her to say, all right, go kill that bull. And, and you know, I'm going to do whatever I'm doing with my day. Like she's following him around, micromanaging him, making sure it's getting done. And it's very clear that she's taking a kind of sadistic thrill in putting him in his place. And then all of a sudden, the tables turn on her and instead of Mr. Greenleaf coming out of the woods, it's the bull, his head lowered, racing yeah. towards her. And, and of course, again, the wood line represents the borderline between this world and the next. And he comes from the other side. He, right. comes from the, he comes from the borderline between our world and the next, and he's galloping toward us. And it says that she, I mean, she's basically immobilized, but it's not in fear, but freezing unbelief. So she, so she just sort of can't believe what's it's happening. Real. Yeah. And and the bull is described as, you know, burying his head in her lap like a wild, tormented lover. Before her expression changed. So he, yeah, so she stares unbelievingly that he's coming out of the woodline at her. And then when he actually does bury his horns in her, in her side and basically, you know, kill her, her expression is changed with recognition. She goes from unbelief to recognition. So it's a happy story. How has she managed to be redeemed? I mean, so what what does the redemption amount to? I mean, what what well, change let's, let's happens just keep going. in her? Let's just keep going with a little end of the text here. It says, one of his horns sank until it pierced her heart, and the other curved round her side and held her in an unbreakable grip. So the imagery, of course, is that her heart that has been so hard has now been pierced, mm-hmm. and that she's gripped by the one who has transformed her. She continued to stare straight ahead, but the entire scene in front of her had changed. The tree line was a dark wound in a world that was nothing but sky. So now the tree line is in a certain way opened and she sees the sky, the the heavens. And she had the look of a person whose sight has been suddenly restored. There's that sight imagery again, but who finds the light unbearable. So she now sees beyond the tree line into heaven her eyes are open. The light has come. She's gone from unbelief into seeing, and it's unbearable because it's so glorious. 
Okay, and so then we turn to the last sentence, and it says, uh, as Mr. Greenleaf shoots the bull, she did not hear the shots, but she felt the quake and the huge body, the body of the bull, as it sank, pulling her forward on its head so that she so that she seemed, when Mr. Gre Greenleaf reached her, to be bent over whispering some last discovery into the animal's ear. So there's this kind of reconciliation, reunion with the animal, which she's discovered the secret of what he represents, as it were. I mean – it's as if she's whispering in his ear because she's discovered heaven. The light that was unbearable, it says, has opened her eyes and she's gone from unbelief to seeing. Uh, you know, so it's, it's clearly highly symbolic. Like the symbolism has taken over the empiricism. It's not so much that we're looking at an empirical. We are looking at an empirical event, but in and through it, it's become very transparent to its symbolic uh, – the, symbol, the symbolic content has kind of become extremely weighty in the way it's articulated. And it's suggesting to us through the outward gestures that the inward soul was changed. There's, a, there's this interesting line about midway through the story, and this is a um, – she's admonishing – I, th I can't remember if it's Mr. Greenleaf or, or one of his sons, but she says, uh, you'll find out one of these days. You'll find out what reality is, and their reality is, is capitalized when it's too late. I take this to be foreshadowing. Of course, right? that's what, that's that's what happens to her. When the bull comes out charging her, she can't believe it. She's actually encountering reality. But it's not too late for her in some no. sense, right? No, no, I, no. She's, uh, she's saved. She's redeemed. It's just that it happens abruptly and very violently, but it's actually in the end, the motivation is – it's like the you know, the violence of divine love. I mean, she – Flannery O'Connor sometimes broach, bridges on the extreme in terms of like uh, portraying divine love in such powerful terms that you could think it's like almost portraying God as a sadist. But of course, she doesn't believe God's a sadist. She mm -hmm. believes – she believes these are metaphors for the, as it were, intensity and reality of, of divine grace. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's been great to be talking to you about all this this morning. Yeah, it's really fun. Did you enjoy this podcast? If so, please give us a positive review and let your friends know about it. Also, for more resources on the works we discussed in this episode, head on over to our project's website, virtue.uchicago.edu. And please check out our blog, The Virtue Blog, at thevirtueblog.com. <laughs>